get to talk with you and explore with you um, what is going on in the Bible as we're working our way through this book of Acts. And, and I guess what I wanted to ask you as we begin um, <clears throat> is whether you've ever had to put on a performance to impress someone. Uh, when we came back to Scotland from America in 2004, part of my job for Amazon as I got started was to rent an office block for the software team that I was going to put together. And the truth is, I had never done anything even remotely like that before ever in my life. I, I remember visiting office building after office building with all these kind of professionals, our broker in his suit, um, and all these suited sales agents and glossy brokers uh, walking around trying to not look like a complete moron uh, as they talk about, you know, break options and construction methods and seating densities and square footage. And I was like, I have no idea what any of this means at all. Um, All I was trying to do was not look completely stupid, um, not to say anything completely stupid so that I would fit in, so that I could feel like I belonged there, so that I would not be unmasked as an imposter and someone who doesn't really belong. To look like I actually had a clue what I was doing. Um, I think the truth is there are a lot of times in life where we feel like we need to put on a show, where we need to put on a performance, cover up who we really are, not let people see what's really going on. And almost always that's driven by trying to impress other people, whether it's the people you're directly in front of or somebody else watching on from the side. Now today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what happens when this putting on a performance crashes into church. And um, last week, Pat helped us explore um, the amazing community, the results from believing in and living out the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, this resurrection event that we're going to celebrate in the uh, Easter week through Good Friday and into Resurrection Sunday just ahead of us. And what it made in the, uh, the, the passage we were reading is a community that cared for one another to the extent that nobody in the community was in need that there were no needy people among them. Now, that was, uh, that was an awesome community of radically transformed people. But this week, unfortunately, we're going to see that there is trouble in paradise. Now, if you're not familiar with today's passage, uh, it's the tale of Ananias and Sapphira. If those names don't mean anything to you, I need to give you a bit of a trigger warning uh, before we read about it, because we've seen the power of God to heal people. We've seen the power of God spark opposition. We've seen the power of God create a revolutionary community, enable speaking. Well, today we're going to see it kill people. What we're about to read is uncomfortable. Uh, It's the sort of piece that we might prefer to cut out of the Bible and bin it or just explain it away, pretend there's some other explanation. But Luke, our author, gives us this story straight next to that happy family paradise of the first early church. So we have to talk about and think about what this means for us alongside um, what we've heard on the positive. Now, Nita's going to read for us this week. So um, she's going to be reading from the book of Acts in the Bible, and she's going to read the first section of chapter 5. Have a listen, but don't freak out, and then we'll talk about it. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money 
you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the prize you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the prize. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down <coughs> at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So why exactly do two people end up dead in one day? Why is, why is God so miffed that they kept back some of the money for themselves? That's our first big question here. Why is this going on? And what we're going to do is we're going to start with some wrong answers before we make our way to the right answer or what might be the right answer. Here is our first wrong answer for you. Um, the wrong answer is they're dead because they didn't give enough money to church. Let me start with that one. Did God kill them because they didn't give enough? Is, is today's big message to you, hand over your money or you're dead? Well, as a church, it's true that we are basically 100% funded by you. And what we do does cost a bunch of money between staff and training, buildings and equipments and stuff. Yeah, we would love to have more money so we could do more because there's plenty more we would like to do. Um, and we do need quite a bit anyway just to keep the, the, the wheels on. So um, if you do want to join in with that, then um, you can go to hopecityedinburgh.org slash support us if you'd like to give. But that is not what this passage is about. They're not dead because the offering they brought was insufficient, inadequate. And this is not God threatening any of you this morning, kind of stalking you with his scythe, death style, pointing at your credit cards. We've talked in the past about what Christians call stewardship, right? Where we acknowledge that everything we have, everything we've got really belongs to God. And that's because he gave it to us and he made us able to earn it. That really means we're just looking after it for him. We're stewarding it uh, for him. So it is true at bottom that everything we own does belong to God. And he's got this right to demand it back because it's his. But um, what we heard in that story wasn't God showing up like some, you know, Dick Turpin highwayman with the cry, stand and deliver your money or your life. Um, he, he doesn't demand it all on the pain of death or the church would be rather better funded. That that's not what's going on here. Uh, and I can prove it, actually, because last week uh, we read this. We read um, that from time to time, those who owned land or houses 
they sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now notice in that little passage, it is from time to time that this sort of thing kept happening. It's not, you know, and then everyone who owned anything sold the whole lot real quick. Um, no, that's, that, that's not. There, there, there are plenty of people in this young church in Jerusalem who haven't sold a thing yet and they're not struck dead. In fact, if you look back at verse four, which we read this morning, which Nita read for us, Peter goes to pain to point out, he goes to pains to point out there wasn't an obligation to sell property or to give away the remaining or the resulting money. Um, Look at this. He says, um, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Now, um, Peter's point here is that the the property was under Ananias' control. He could have kept it or sold it. He didn't have to do either. There was no obligation to sell everything. And then once he had sold it, the money was under his control. He could have kept it or gave it. That wasn't the issue. It would be totally wrong to understand God's judgment here falling on Ananias and Sapphira simply because God demands everything and they didn't pony up. There'd be a much higher body count if that was what was going on. Uh, instead, we see Ananias and Sapphira, who at least, at least they brought something to the apostles' feet. Well, they're dead, where there are plenty who have brought nothing still breathing. So if that's not their problem, right, what is it? Let me give you another potential wrong answer. Okay, so they're dead because they didn't give enough to church. Well, what about this? They're dead because God keeps his church um, perfectly pure. Now, when I began thinking about this passage, I wondered if that would be right to see this as primarily God upholding the purity of his people, enforcing the absolute holiness of uh, his new people as they begin this new chapter, right? The church community's just been established. Like maybe this is him making a point about how holy it is. Maybe how he's going to keep this new people drawn together by his spirit perfectly pure. So is it the case that anyone who messes up the absolute perfection and purity of the new people, ends up dead? That there's such a holy community that people who can't lie die? Well, no. Uh, Actually, in the very next chapter, we'll find one part of the church complaining about another part and then complaining about this other part because of what looks on the surface to be racism. Have Have a look at me about Acts Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In those days, it's just after what we're reading, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that is Jews with Greek backgrounds, among them were complaining against the Hebraic Jews, that is Jews with Israelite backgrounds, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Some people were getting food in a daily distribution. Other people, so it seems, because of their background, their origin, their race, were not getting food. That is not cool. People are being left out rather than cared for just because of where they come from. That is not a perfectly pure church that we're reading about there. But nobody winds up dead. And if you were to read any, really, of the ancient letters to early churches, which are contained in our Bible, at the back of the Bible, we call them the epistles, the letters, the writings. We've got lots and lots of letters to churches. Read any of those, you'd see there is plenty of mess in almost every single church that's written about, like there is here too. But the body count is nowhere near what it would have to be if it were the problem count. 
So we really can't read this as God demanding and ensuring absolute purity for his church. Maybe it's a warning shot across the bow. Maybe that's one way to read it. But it's not kind of enduringly controlling that sort of purity. And that's just as well. Because if church was only for pure people, only for perfect people, well, there'd be no church. There'd be no church there in Jerusalem. Back at the beginning, there'd be no church here in Edinburgh. I'd be dead for sure. I'm not saying it's good or even that it's okay that church is a really mixed thing, that there are some people, you know, or most of us who are struggling. I'm not saying it's okay that it's not perfectly pure, but God doesn't fix it by striking down dead all of the people who are messing up. If he did, there'd be no one left. Two wrong answers, okay? It's not that God demands everything right away. Plenty of people haven't given everything. They're not dead. Second answer, it's not that God keeps his church perfectly pure on an ongoing basis. Pretty sure this wasn't the only thing wrong in that early church in Jerusalem. So why do those two people get this particular focus of God's immediate and severe justice? What, what is it about them that he particularly stands against? Why is this nearly the only place that we see God stepping in and acting in terminal judgment inside his church, his new church? I mean, they just kept back some of the money, right? It's just a few quid. Or was it actually something deeper? Remember last week, Pat was helping us explore God's new resurrection community that was filled with love and generosity. Right before today's passage, the last thing we read last week was the story of Barnabas. And Barnabas sells a field and gives the money to those in need, gives the money for those in need. Today's passage is the counterpoint. It's like the exact opposite of Barnabas's genuine generosity. What you get here is not genuine, it's fake. And what you get here is not generosity, it's, it's selfishness. See, think about what is going on inside Ananias and Sapphira. Why would they lie about this? Why do they say, oh yeah, this is all the money, when they know full well this is not all the money? I think you can imagine them planning out their words. Imagine them preparing what it is they're going to say as they bring the money. You know, they're going to say, oh yeah, yeah, we we sold that field, that that beautiful, lovely field. It was my favorite, actually. It had a lovely tree, great yields. We sold that field. It really hurt, but we knew it was the right thing to do. You see, I don't know how we're going to manage. It's going to be tough, but... We just really wanted to give it all to the poor. What can I say? I guess we're just that sort of people, right? Did they really, even for a moment, think they were going to take God in? Could they be putting on this act, this performance, oh yeah, this is all the money, I'm thinking that they're doing that for God, that they're going to convince God that God's going to look on and they're going to win his favor? I don't think so. I don't think that is reasonable at all. I don't think anyone who takes God seriously could really imagine they can pull the wool over his eyes. It's a pretty dumb idea. It's obviously not going to work with a God who knows everything and sees everything. It reminds me of the toddler covering their eyes and saying, you can't see me. That's how stupid it is to think God can't see what's going on. So I don't think that can be what they're doing, trying to fake it for God, trying to mislead God. And, and I think you can see that reflected in the text here because Peter, from what he says, he, he makes it look like they thought they were just performing for people, just lying to men. Peter has to correct them. Have a look at verse four here. He says, um, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. <laughs> 
You've not just lied to humans, but to God. And the implication is they thought they were just lying to humans. They thought they were just going to mislead a bunch of people into thinking they were nicer than they really were. But really, Peter says, no, you're not just doing that. You're lying to God, the Holy Spirit. Whether you believe it or admit it or realize it or not, that is what you're doing. And that's why they wind up dead. So here is what I think. Here's what I think the right answer is. What's behind this exceptional act of judgment? Why the body count? Because God hates a fake and a strong language, but they're dead. Strong language is appropriate. God hates a fake, particularly a fake within his precious new community, within this community that he bought at huge price with the lifeblood of his own son. Now, fakes are toxic for the church. They're toxic for the community, but they're toxic for her mission as well. Did you know that the top two negative ways Christians are described in the UK is narrow-minded, not giant surprise there, and then hypocritical. Top two ways were decided, described, narrow-minded and then hypocritical. People hate a fake. But it's not just the world around us that hates fake. God hates hypocrites too. He shows us that here with this extraordinary judgment. He is dead set against it, if you'll forgive the phrase. Now, I want us to dig deep and think about why they would fake it. What's driving that? Because I think that can help us. As you know, when we look at a passage like this, One temptation is to think, oh, I'm nothing like them. This has nothing to say to me. That is always wrong. The right thing to think about is, I'm so much like them. What does this say to me? So we are so much like these people. What's it going to say to us? How is it going to help us avoid falling into the same trap? See, they faked it for the church. Now, yes, like Peter pointed out to them, um, that was faking it towards God as well. Um, But they set out, I think, to fake it for the church. They put on that, oh, we're giving it all away act for the church. Why? To impress people, to create a reputation, to get ranked, to get admitted into the kind of Barnabas level of, um, you know, church coolness. Oh, I see you're in the Barnabas tier of church membership. Here, let me escort you directly to the VIP seating area for people like you. You know, that, that, does that sort of thing ever happen anymore where people perform, put on an act in order to find themselves on the inside, put on a performance to make your way into the inner circle, fake it to make it. That temptation is hugely powerful. Let's not kid ourselves. We all long to be a part of something. We all wish we were on the inside and yet so often feel like we're on the outside. It's almost wired into us, you could say. So what do we do about it? Well, first, if you're putting on a performance for people, and I think the truth is most of us are doing this somewhere, knowingly covering something up, knowingly not telling the whole story. Well, when I put on a performance, do you know what today's passage tells me? It says I'm looking in the wrong direction. It says it's like being on the stage in a giant theater, if you can imagine it, seating full and your eyes are fixed on the crowd right in front of you. But you know what you've done? You've ignored the royal box up there. And there is the queen. That's what it's like when we perform for people, but ignore God. Because God is, he's truly among his people. He's always in our audience. Faking it's not just lying to people, it's lying to God. And that's a deadly serious business. And maybe we can get away with faking it for people. I think you can. 
fake it for people and draw them in. I think the truth is we all know stories of people who have done that. Maybe you're getting away with it right now. But God is also watching and he sees straight through and he isn't impressed. In fact, he does hate that. Strong language, but it's true. So when we accept, when we get our heads around this idea that God is always in our audience, always watching on, we know we can't fake it. He sees straight through. I think you see that realization of just how completely God sees through it, how dead set is against it. Strike this early church, okay? Two dead people didn't strike them, apart from striking them dead. But the rest of the church, do you know what we're told about them? We're told that great fear seized the whole church. And all who heard about these things. There's great fear inside the church. This is no place for pretending people. And there's great fear outside the church too. You can't fake it in that church. If you want to join these church folks, you better be ready to be seen through. And that is scary. None of us really wants to be seen through. None of us really wants people to know all of our failures, our weaknesses, our faults, all the ones I can hide from you, but knowing that I can't hide them from God. Now, great fear, it has to be said, is not the whole story here. Think about Jesus, right? When he is toe-to-toe with the Pharisees who were like the um, religious super winners of his day, um, the Jewish religious elite. Now, from the outside, those Pharisees, they tick all the boxes. If there was any rule that you could do, they did it. If there was any performance you could put on, they performed it. If there was anything you could do to demonstrate you were that good, they, they did it. Jesus calls them out as fakes. He tears strips off of them. His language is so unlike what we'd imagine Jesus to be speaking like. You Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, he says. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, he says, you try and appear to people as righteous on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy. And wickedness, he calls them names. He says, you are children of hell. You are blind fools. You are snakes. You are a brood of vipers. Jesus is harsh with hypocrites. But then think of how gentle and gracious he is with people who are getting life wrong. Uh, Even vastly wrong. But they don't act as if they're getting it right. He doesn't smite them, shout at them, strike them down. He doesn't even just steer clear of them. In fact, it seems like he seeks them out, goes out of his way to hang out with them, talks gently with them, eats with them, invites them towards life and towards grace. So I think here you do see the truth that God hates a fake. But you also have to remember that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Got to hold these things in tension. Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father. The disciples ask him one day, they say, how how should we pray? What's the best way to do that? How do we go about it? He says, our Father is how you begin. And what does that mean? Jesus invites us to become God's children. He invites us to have that as our identity, our position. We don't have to earn that through putting on a perfect performance. And it'll do us no good at all to fake 
that we've got a perfect performance. That's the best we could really manage ourselves. Instead, it's Jesus who's already done it with a real perfect performance. Not one misstep, not one fault. Think about Jesus' famous story of the prodigal son. Now, when the wayward son who's gone away, taken the father's stuff, blown everything, wasted it in this wicked and sinful, wrong life, when he finally returns, his plan in his head is, I'm gonna plead with my father, treat me like one of your servants. Let me earn my keep. Let me prove myself. Let me show you that at least I'm worth feeding. But instead, he is welcomed as a son. He's welcomed as somebody with nothing to prove, nothing to earn, no performance required. So we have to be conscious that God is always in our audience. He hates a fake. But we also have to be conscious that in grace, he invites sinners home. So liberating. I mean, it's just hard to believe it's such a good truth, but it is so liberating. Second, we need to be super clear on what it takes to fit in here at church. Who it is who belongs on the inside at Hope City. Because, see, rather than helping one another fight this temptation as a church to fake it, instead, we can turn up the pressure so easily. Each time, any one of us, fakes it. Do you know what we're doing? We are feeding the flames. Every time we fake it, we're driving somebody else to fake it too. Every time we put on a performance, we make it look like, oh, this is easy. I got this. You haven't got this? Oh, I've got this. Yeah, I get it all right. Every time we make it look like we are making the grade, we create that pressure for others to think they've got to make the grade too, because that's what it's about. Now, God is probably not going to strike you down today for faking it at church but it is still toxic for us as a church. Perhaps that's why God judges it so severely in this passage, because it would have been so corrupting for that early church. See, it is just all too easy to turn into a bunch of shiny, happy people who look like we're winning at everything, and that's what it means to be a part of church. Each one of us putting on a performance all the while, pretending that life's all good, that we're all good, we're ticking all the boxes, we're making the grade. That is not what defines God's new community. It's not a club for nice people, for do-gooders where only the winners fit in. Quite the opposite. God's new community is a hospital for broken people. So of course there are going to be broken people here. Imagine going to a hospital and finding nobody sick there. That wouldn't make any sense because that's who it's for. Well, that's who church is for. Church is for broken people. So of course you're going to find broken people here. Of course, people are going to get it wrong with you and around you, and you're going to get it wrong around them and with them too. But that really is its beauty. Made out of this brokenness restored. So instead of feeding the fake, feed the real story here at Hope City. Each time you tell the truth about your brokenness, and your failures. Do you know what you do? You create a climate where others can tell the truth about their failures and their brokenness. And you shine a light on God's grace that means you can be a part of his family still, even though you don't make the grade. The glory, the honor goes to him for letting you in rather than for you making the grade. Hope City, let's try and be real with one another. And each time somebody dares to uncover themselves towards you and tell you the truth about who they are, Tell you even just a little of their struggle with temptation. I'll remind them 
They belong here. Remind them that God's grace is sufficient for them. Remind them that this is the true inside at Hope City. We are a community that is built on grace. That is our foundation. There's no door to the community is grace. There is no other way in. Now, this is, this is big stuff. It's personal stuff. I want to do just now is give you a minute just to reflect on what we've talked about this morning. Just 60 seconds. Going to put some questions up on screen. You might want to ask yourself. And then I'll come back and pray for us. So just 60 seconds with these questions starting now. Lord God, um, what a strange passage to think about. What a thing to see recorded about your uh, new community that even in those earliest days uh, had people who uh, made uh, huge mistakes and saw your serious and severe judgment. Lord, as we think about who we are today and the community that you've made here, God, please uh, help us. Help us not to be fakes. Uh, Lord, you know it takes courage to be honest about who we really are. It takes a deep grasp of the reality of your grace and understanding that we are your children. And so we are secure in your love. Lord God, please help us to have that appreciation for your grace. And so please help us to be real with one another. Help us not to wallow in our failings and uh, um, celebrate them. Ah, Lord, help us to lament them still, but to point ourselves and others to your grace to remember that um, it is you who permits and makes us able to be a part of your family, even though uh, we still um, fail and stumble in these things. God, please, might our church be a community of grace and truth, not a community of fake smiles. Uh, we ask this um, not for our glory, but for your glory, so that as we see your grace meted out to one another and all the things we get wrong, that we praise you more and more for your great grace towards us. Please help us. Amen. Now, Hope City is a community of grace. That means we can be a community of truth rather than a community of fakes. We're built on the wonderful truth that although God sees us as we truly are, we can cover nothing up from him. He's always in our audience. Well, still, in grace, he welcomes us through Jesus. So we're gonna sing together and reflect on that great truth.